everyone to JCV Art Studios Season 5. My name is Joanna. For first-time listeners, I am the author of two thriller novels, The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. And uh, just to give you an update on Ozzy and Pepper, the Ozzy and Pepper Chronicles are two miniature schnauzers. They are doing very well. They were in the studio, but as our guest saw and heard, they started to get a little rambunctious. Yeah. So they're growing well. And, um, you know, it's amazing what dogs, how dogs can, they're now taking turns and sharing. So when I give one a treat, the other one has learned, because I'm training him, that he has to wait his turn and then he gets his treat. You know, it's too bad we couldn't do that with the human race sometimes. Hey, (laughs) today, today I have Stephanie Ellis with me. Stephanie writes dark, speculative prose and poetry. She's been published in a variety of magazines and anthologies. Uh, I'm just I'm going to name off a few titles here. Uh, What one would do the old days. And oh, that's the old ways. The old ways. I'm sorry, Stephanie. I'm sorry. Might and even be the old ones. I might have got it wrong. As well. <laughs> Eerie River Publishing. I'll throw that in there in case they tell me off. It's very new, so it's okay. not stuck in my head yet. Okay. And you're in an anthology called A Silent Dystopia? Is- yeah, yeah. Oh. A shared world anthology. Wow. And we're going to talk about her book, Reborn. Okay, so just a little bit more here. Her stories can be found in collections, um, such as The Reckoning and As the Wheel Turns. Her poetry has been published in the HWA Poetry Showcase. Um, She has co-written a collection of found poetry, foundlings, with Cindy O'Quinn, based on the work of Alessandro Manzetti and Lisa D. Addison. She's a very pleasant lady, and to think <laughs> of Reborn, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting podcast. So, Stephanie, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Can I just throw in there about foundlings? A few weeks back, we found it has got onto the preliminary ballot for the HWA Bram Stoker's Poetry Collection Award. So in about a week's time, we find whether we've got nominated or not. So it's it's quite exciting. But I, I just like to share that with people because it doesn't always happen to me. <laughs> That's excellent. I'm glad you shared it. Yes. And please correct me if I say any names or get my facts incorrect okay I don't yeah that's, that's do. like me I get it wrong all the time and I, I do try to get it right I've got my notes here and I'll say to anyone listening who thinks oh they've got to know everything when they go on a panel or a podcast take your notes with you you don't have to sit there trying to remember it the first panel I ever did I went there trying to hold it all in my head and then I looked to my left and my right and I saw they had their notes and I said you've got your notes they said yeah we always bring them so next panel I did I had my notes when I've got podcasts I've got notes around me I might not see them but they're there there. and I I find it's just from my time working at the crown council the prosecutor's office don't take like 
surprises were never good in the prosecutor's office, you know, so I have my notes. Yeah. So you've mentioned found poetry. Before we get started, can you explain to me what found poetry is and when did you become interested in poetry? Uh, I've been interested in poetry for some time now. It started ages ago in my working days. I was a tech author and I was a software author and I was in this little corner. It's a very male dominated environment. And I was in a little corner with several other authors. Uh, They were engineering authors or marine authors, things like that. And we found that we were often the ones who had to pick up the pieces of other people's work as well as our own because we did a good job. And then we also found that we were paid a lot less than these other people, or these other people would get promoted. And so to vent a little bit, I would write a little bit of verse about a situation and share it on our little table. And they used to enjoy that. So I've got a whole collection somewhere, like a diary of that time. I'd have got sacked probably if the bosses had seen it, but it was a way of just venting. So I I kept doing that. And then they they asked me to write verse about themselves. They'd give me their characteristics, what they like, and I'd do a little poem for them. But that's what I would call fun verse rather than poetry. And then I sort of left it a bit, and but I I scribbled a little bit more, and then, then I carried on. Um, just for myself, really, it was just playing with words because poetry is a great way to create imagery, which comes into my prose writing and to just play around with things. And then I'd say it seems like yesterday, but it must be about five years ago now. I will be 59 this year. So my um, concept of time has just gone out the window. But there was a month during April and it was this, I think it's the unfound poetry site. And it was a challenge. Every day you had to do a different type of found poetry. And to do found poetry, they would give you maybe a page of text or maybe a couple of poems you put together. And what you would do, you would pick out the the words that you liked and just using those words, you wouldn't bring in anything else. It had to be from the source material, create something new. And I really enjoyed that. And it's like a puzzle. And so I've done it on and off for a little while. I think about last year or the year before I did author's blurbs, I found books that I've got on my shelves. And I did a little graphic and I did a blurb, a, a poem, which took words out of each of these blurbs. No other nothing else and it's like a puzzle so when we talk I was talking to Cindy and we were sort of thinking about something to do together and I can't remember who came up with the idea first it it is in the front of the book how it all came apart apart (laughs) but she she really enjoys Linda D Addison's work and I enjoy it as well and I'd come to read Linda's work when she'd done a collaboration with Alessandro Manzetti and I was mainly reading Alessandro Mansetti. So we both discovered that we knew these poets' work and we really enjoyed it. So we decided to create our own um, collection based on those poems. So, so what we would do, we'd choose a couple of poems each. I was focusing on Alessandro's and she would focus on Linda's. And then we would pull our words out and just create a new poem. And you had to do something totally new because if you just pull out sentences you know lines from a stanza or whatever together it's it's plagiarism you've got to make sure that it's um very much an original um work and then linda and alessandro actually agreed to do the foreword for us so they wrote the foreword to the work that we did 
And then as we both created the poems Cindy for Linda and the, me for Alessandro, we then also worked on poems that Linda and Alessandro had co-written together. So then we would find a fan poem from that and then we'd sort of break it down. So it's it like a never-ending puzzle and it was really great fun. So to find that other people have enjoyed it is, you know, it's, it's it's been lovely. I don't know how far it'll go in terms of any awards or whatever, but it, it, it was just so easy to do. Cindy herself has said it, you know, it's a magical process. We loved the poets initially, we still do, and it just made it really, really easy to write that book. And I did another collection of found poetry purely purely for my own personal enjoyment because I love metal music, heavy metal, that sort of thing. And so I created metallurgy. I went through lyrics, <laughs> 200 yeah. metal lyrics, and I thought it would be easy, but then you see what the lyrics are actually like, a lot of repetition, and that was hard, but I did enjoy it. And there's a Spotify playlist called Metallurgy, and it's got about 96 of the 100 poems that I wrote. It's got the tracks there for 96 of the, the sources. So, so I've, I've done a, a bit, of, you know, a few of them now, and I do enjoy doing that. I'd like to do something again, but I just haven't worked out what. But it is also a very good writing exercise for people. Yeah. So if, you, if you're stuck, you can just get a, a page out of a book or – a poem or something and look at those words and then try and create something new it is quite a challenge because you it does make something smaller quite often but it's it's just really good fun and because I like doing puzzles puzzles and poetry is just a great way to try and sort of I don't know stretch my brain a little bit that is really cool because as you're talking I'm thinking you know there are times when at night you know, let's say you know, after you've had your dinner and I still want to do something with regards to writing, but I have been, let's say, working on my book for, you know, all day and I'm just, I'm, I'm tired, but I'd still want to do something writing wise. So yeah. that would be so neat to, to look at something and take certain words and just write something for yeah. yourself, right? Yeah. And I, yeah, I usually find that once I've pulled all the words out and I'll be looking at them, two will suddenly sort of slot together. And from those two, I don't know how, but they just give me a sense of the sort of mood of the piece and how it's going to evolve. And it always seems to be two together first, and then I build up from there. But it is really good fun and one I would recommend to everybody and anybody. But I don't think the AI... Oh, there was something on Twitter today about the AI-generated um, um, stories that are coming out at the moment. I don't know whether AI would be able to do it. I don't think they'd have the same, I don't know, feelings yeah. putting in. You know, they they wouldn't get the mood. They'd probably be able to do it, but it would feel very clinical, whereas I think that little human element would make it, you know, much more interesting. Yeah. So, okay, thinking of your book, Reborn, now, what came first, folklore or reading? Because it's reading horror novels. Like, what what kind of came first? What came first for you? Ah, uh, well, this is part of a world that I built up in Five Turns of the Wheel, and actually, it was partly because I was watching The Wicker Man, and I was watching. Uh, the scene where they have this procession through the streets and they're all in costume, like an old-fashioned mama's troupe, where you would have a punch and a hobby horse and you've got the half man, half woman. So I just, that idea of creating creatures or people that were 
that sort of conform to that appearance. I just thought they would be a great element in a folk horror novel. But there was a strange bit of nostalgia for my past as well, because I grew up in the countryside. Um, When I was about eight, we moved from the market town of Evesham to the cider house in Shropshire. And it was in the middle of nowhere. It was a rural pub. It wasn't even it wasn't in a village. Uh, some might say it's a hamlet, but the, there was a house down the road about half a mile away, farms. There were no neighbours. We're just in the middle of nowhere. And so it was It's because we've been in a city for ages. I mean, we're in Wrexham now, but I was living in Southampton. I was just getting a bit nostalgic for my rural upbringing, all the sort of people that I met, the the farmers, the way of life there. And I thought it'd be nice to bring those elements because there are creepy elements when you grow up in the countryside the the times when it's really quiet at night the the times when I'm, I was walking the lane home from school because we'd have to get a bus when it was primary school I'd get a little mini bus that would take me to the village that was five miles away for primary school and then for secondary school which is when you're 11 you go to the old school I'd get another bus which is a mile the other way and then it was 10 miles to the town where I went to school but it was always about a mile walk to the bus stop along very narrow country lanes. And I'd, especially in the autumn and the winter when the evenings are, are sort of drawing in and it's dark and you get this half light and your imagination plays tricks because it's all shapes change. Yeah. And it's that sort of creepy element. There were times because the pub I was in, it was a very busy pub, especially in the summer, because we would get a lot of people from the cities coming out to visit and it would be absolutely packed. And on a summer evening, there'd be a lot of noise outside, a lot of chatter. And then suddenly when it closed, because this was in the days of the pubs shutting, you know, they would be last orders about half 10 and everyone would be gone by 11 and then it's silent. And then that exaggerated it even more. And then you'd have the tree scrape, you know, a branch scraping on a window or if there was a thunderstorm. It was just things like that you could bring in. Um, I think one of the early memories that I had there was, when storms came, I never realised how silent everything is when a storm was approaching. If you stood outside, the birds would stop. It was as if the trees would stop and there was this sort of strange pressure around you and you just knew a storm was coming. And so it's all little things like that. I thought combine the memories and those um, sort of almost caricatured people I'd seen in The Wicker Man and create this world of of folk horror and just have a bit of fun because I do like to have fun in my writing as writing as well. So although I've created some what I would call villains or grotesques, you do have a little chuckle at them sometimes, even if while they're ripping a few people apart. Well, and when I'm thinking about it, you mentioned storm last night. You know, we had the weather warning, wind warning, you know, up to 100 kilometres per hour winds you know 70 kilometer per hour winds and our power went out for 30 minutes so we're lucky right because there have been times when it's gone out for 24 hours so we were lucky it only went out for eight hours I mean I mean 30 minutes but um it was the dogs because as soon as it went and it got quiet the dogs are then looking you know, just because I guess they're not hearing those regular noises you would you would hear, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so was there any book, I like asking this, that you read as a child 
that made you want to write the type of stories that you write? Um, I, I, I love hearing stories of kids, you know, discovering their dad's, you know, reading collection and picking out, you know, Pet cemetery or something like that. So was there any book as a child that really sticks out for you? I read a lot as a child, mainly because my parents were working all the time. Um, if you're going to raise a family, don't have them in a pub. That's what they've always said, because they were working 365 days a year, half a day off at Christmas on about Christmas Day. Um, but at my age back then, when you thought about careers or what you wanted to do, writing wasn't thought of I honestly didn't even think of writing or that I'd be able to do it it's just these people created these wonderful books that I could read and I would just devour them it was only several years ago now towards my late 40s when I was sort of 49 50 that I started submitting so just before then I started to write um it, as I say I'm a very late in life writer so a lot of people out there you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be a, a new writer can be an older writer. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of older people, especially older women, think maybe they don't have a place in the writing world because we don't necessarily appear as glamorous as everybody else. Or you, There's so many things that go on in a woman's life, I think, especially when you're raising children, you've got pressures of finances and running the home, that you have very little time to yourself to for yourself. I mean, I'm lucky now that I can get on with it. But discovering that I wanted to write, that was when I started going back into the workplace. I took a career break um, with the kids, not necessarily because we could afford it. Um, it was always a struggle. But because we thought with the way the childcare was, that there's basically no point in having a family because we wouldn't have seen them. Yeah. Um, I did work until my firstborn was about three, but that was only because we had a, a car loan I had to pay off. After that, it was tight, but I stayed home. But when the youngest, I've got three, they're all young adults now, um, back home again, I'll say. Yeah. Uh, but they're beginning to find their way out in the world. But at that time, they were the youngest was in school, and so I was able to start looking at things I could do and I was on the their junior school PTA and I was talking to Head and they were saying they were looking for part-time librarians. And she asked if I wanted to come in. And so I, I said, yeah. yeah. And she knew me. So I went in there and it was actually paid. I thought, oh, it's paid. It wasn't just voluntary. It was paid. I was expecting it to be a voluntary role, but it's, it was paid. And um, while I was reading all the books there, I was thinking, oh, I could have a go at writing a story. And from that, although I didn't stay in the junior school library, I moved to a secondary school library later, one which my son was at. And then his friend said I was following him everywhere. <laughs> no, no, it's just that it happened to be a full time job. So more money, which helped the family. Yeah. But at that point, I wrote a sort of um, YA teen fantasy, which I've still got to find a place for. But it lurks in the background. Um but I, I, I hadn't been taking my writing seriously until that point. And I thought, no, I, I'd really like to do it. But I put that aside and picked up a writing magazine and started scanning things, tried their short story writers course and was told that my writing was interesting, but would probably fit competitions rather than your mainstream women's magazines, which was right. But they put in a little, um, they put in all these submission calls and there was a little one for a horror um, anthology 
and it just asked for stories about potatoes that feature potatoes. I keep this is a, I'm getting used to this story now. I've still not placed the story, by the way. And I wrote it. It's called Death is Not a Potato. And I set it during the siege of Leningrad and it was quite dark, but it never actually got placed. But the editor liked my work and said, you know, send us something else in future. And I did. And because I, I, they did a call and I can't remember what it was, but I got the story in. I thought, I really like this because I found I was creating figures in there or characters who were, they were coming off worse. Things were bad. Things were happening to them. But they were doing something horrible themselves to other people. So I think in one of those early stories, I'd got loan sharks and um, oh, other people, maybe an abusive husband or people who were just too full of themselves and were looking down. And I just sort of pulled them all in and yeah. dished out dished out a little bit of horror to them all. It's, it gives you a little feeling of satisfaction because I think in this day and age, you all these things happen but you feel helpless. No one's listening to you. You think victims aren't supported as much as they should be. And if you've got a lot of money, you can get away with anything pretty much. Yeah. And I think in, in horror that you can actually play with some of these scenarios. I don't do it all the time, but occasionally I do and create something out. Yeah. They got their just desserts for a change, you know? So, it's, so that's how I came to writing is through, um, reading more, reading in the libraries and thinking, oh, I could do this, finding those submission calls. And then I started actively looking for more submissions. And that's where I found thehorrortree.com. Um, going in there, I would find more calls and I would submit. And to everyone listening, I got lots of rejections and I still do. I was rejected yesterday. So yes, you'll hear about my successes, but you'll also hear about lots of rejections. And I stayed at Horatry to help out with their online zine, which does weekly flash fiction. I did that for about five years. I stopped last summer, but I'm still there doing their indie bookshelf releases. So if anybody does dark fiction, speculative fiction, um, they can just send their book cover and a link to me and I'll put it up on the bookshelf, you know, if it's coming out. And so I've stayed involved to help others as well, because I think the speculative fiction community is quite small and it's hard to hard to get your book marketed. I know fantasy and sci-fi tend to have a better, um, I don't know, they, they have a better marketplace than horror. When you go into work into bookshops, you'll find shelves of sci-fi, shelves of fantasy, and horror maybe has a little bit of its own, or it might be plonked in with the rest of it. But from there, I just kept writing, tried novels, and here we are. <laughs> That's excellent. Your story is very, very inspiring. You know, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I needed to hear that today. <laughs> so can you tell us what Reborn is about? Right. Reborn is a follow-up to the Five Turns of the Wheel. So it's uh, folk horror slash dark fantasy. And I've written it in such a way that it can be read by somebody who hasn't read Five Turns. There is enough that I feed in as you read through that will tell you the backstory here. But before I go into the backstory, before I go into the story of Reborn, I think I need to explain a little bit about the Five Turns. And so in five turns, I created a world in a rural corner of England known as the world. And that was six villages with crops at the hub and then the other five around 
around it like spokes of a wheel. So you've got the human world, very rural, very quiet and tucked away. And then alongside this is this supernatural realm called Umbra. And it's just out of sight, what I call just beyond the veil. And you're never quite sure whether they're sort of human, humanish, or or spiritual. It's it's all very, very sort of fluid. And Umbra is ruled by Huayol, who is the son of Mother, Mother Nature. She is the ultimate goddess here, but she has allowed her son Huayol to rule Umbra. And for them to survive, they need human sacrifice. They need blood. And to do that, they Huayol sends his three sons, Tommy, Betty and Fiddler, into these villages, into the world, to lead the rituals that will get the blood and the flesh that they need to survive um but it is a contract in a way they get the blood they need but the villages will prosper so it, it's kept them going for centuries um but during that time it, it's got crueler and crueler in a way and then in five turns it was one of the, the the women of the village megan she decided she needed to stop these rituals and she did um she in the process she lost her parents and the man she believed was her father and she also lost her husband whose spirit resides in one of the ritual swords uh, but she thought she destroyed whale as well but right at the last minute his spirit or his soul is somehow taken up residence in her head so and she's been sent by the mother to umbra to sort of reteach them a little bit about how they should live to try and cut down on the cruelty but mother nature is something that is never going to be um completely friendly and all fluffy bunnies there is always going to be an element <laughs> of cruelty so she's she's been in in umbra for this time and then at the start of reborn she she hasn't got anyone really to talk to she's finding that the folk there aren't really happy with her because she's not letting them go out and perform their rituals. And because they're not getting the blood, they're not getting whatever else they needed, they are becoming quite weak. Um, so you've got Tommy, Betty and Fiddler, the ones who lead the rituals. They are really fed up. And they notice that the fires that surrounded Umbra that stopped them going back into the human world have gradually been dropping down. So they think they can get some forgiveness from the mother. So they decide to leave. So the three of them leave without her permission to find the mother, to get forgiveness to, and see if they can restart these rituals. So they're off on one quest. Then you have Megan, who's feeling isolated. She's got this voice in her head talking to her all the time and she wants to get rid of it. Um, her husband is dead, or at least his spirit's in the sword, and she thinks he. she's been told that the mother can actually remove the voice in her head, can bring her husband back to life. So she too leaves Umbra. So she's going off on her own sort of journey. And then there's an additional thread um, that centuries ago, the horned god Sununos, who is the husband of the mother, had been banished and he was lurking in these marshes, but he was his imprisonment was coming to an end and it's the time of his rising. So he has come back and he is making his way back to the mother. So it's a bit like a family reunion in a way with all these different threads and then one underpinning that is that um, Betty, who, when I talk about the brothers being a mama's troop, you would have Tommy, who's like an MC. He would lead the rituals. Fiddler's the one with the violin and play the music. And Betty is a sort of giant man, but he would dress as a woman for comedic effect. Whenever you see any old plays, any old English 
um, clips on YouTube, you'd probably see as if they're if they're that more if they're that recent, I'll say, but in photos as well, you'll see a man dressed as a woman for humor. Um, but he's not that funny. He is a monster in his own right. And I wanted to explore what makes or what made him like that. So the story of Reborn is very much of how Betty and his brothers came to be. You get a prologue at the start, how yeah. they got their original names and indicating their age. And then all through, it's Betty discovering who he is and whether whether they get reborn, whether they get their strength back at the end, what happens to Megan, you'll have to sort of read to find out. But it was I wanted to do something that was a bit different to Five Turns because Five Turns was very ritualised. I'd created all these different rituals that scaffolded the story, but I thought I can't do that for a follow-up, but I really wanted to write in the world and I wanted to explore it a bit more. So I thought I need to get them out of the world and find another bit of land that was maybe part of their history and bring that in. And I've brought in a few more creatures. I've got these vampire creatures called, I can't say this, it's a really awful pronunciation, blood gitan. It's, there's an old English word and it means bloodthirsty or sucker of blood or something. And I love old English words. I keep trying to learn it and I start and then I stop and I go back. But if I can name something with an old English word, I will. Like whale, that is old English for wheel. So I like to bring those elements in. So I bring in old English words. And I, I think one of the final rituals in Reborn is actually based on something I'd read from sort of Viking rituals from their um, past as well. So I use it as a way of exploring things. And at the minute, I've just started third in the series, but I wanted it to be a sort of Yule type thing. So I'm looking at pagan rituals, at Yule, at Scandinavian history, and maybe bringing in a bit more of that. So Five Turns was very much a lot of my own made-up ideas. Apart from the rapper dance, there's a sword dance in there, which is a real dance. And if you ever want to watch it, there are YouTube clips and these men with these swords dancing around and, oh, near the neck, you think. Oh. But, um, yeah, so I just thought it was a way of bringing in interest and having a lot of fun with it. Well, as you're talking, I'm remembering the prologue. And there's a sacrifice in that prologue and I I remember I was doing okay until I got to the heart <laughs> how you write about the heart I was like ah <laughs> very good very good um so yeah I really enjoyed writing that because I hadn't really worked I mean when you look at the the history of mama's troops the the men who dressed as women were often called Betty um, some were called Molly, but a lot of them were called Betty. And I thought, well, how can I bring in the history of that name? And so I put in all those names there, but never let me, I will never read that prologue unless I have a lot of practice because I can't pronounce half those names. Yeah. I'm terrible. I'll find words that I can't pronounce. So, and then I live in dread that someone's going to ask me how you say it. <laughs> <laughs> so how much work or research goes into creating the settings of these novels um, because there's a definite setting. There's a different, definite flavor to reborn. Like, um, or are you drawing upon a lot of your life experiences of where you lived or? Yes. Yes. In reborn, it's very much, I mean, five turns was more about Shropshire um, countryside. 
Reborn was a bit more about where I was down in, um, I lived down in Southampton, but we would visit Winchester a lot. So we would go up there and we'd walk through the water meadows and around the colleges. And there's St. Catherine Hill with its Ms. Maze at the top, which Betty actually walks around this little maze. We used to climb up there and the, the, the stones and the idea of ley lines, it's all very much part of that world. And so it, in a way, I didn't actually have to do a lot of research. I mean, I discovered the bit about, I think there's a bit in there about Keats having been to Winchester and only doing half the walk that they advertised. And I was thinking I'd love to bring in him into the story. And why did he not finish half the, you know, half the walk? Well, if you read it, you'll find out now. And I actually also included, I think, a line from his Ode to Autumn or something. There's something in there. And it's just a little bit of um, sort of darkish humour, which I... <laughs> I quite enjoyed. But yeah, the, the settings are very much what I know and what I experienced. I do like the rural landscape. I do like the ancient buildings. So if I can bring them into a story, I will do. So it's not as hard as it may may sound. I think a lot of people can bring in a lot more than they think. They don't have to go around looking. They could be something just down the road, you know, yeah. um, but you've never really seen it before. But uh, yeah, so it's very local. So where are you now situated? <laughs> Wrexham, uh, oh, North okay. Wales, include. We moved here about two years ago. Um, it's partly a reaction to COVID because I was in education and I'd worked through the lockdown yeah. and I'd sort of had enough. Um, my husband was working. The kids were at uni, although it was difficult for them as, as well. They, had, they haven't had a brilliant experience, I'll say. Because when they were at uni, they were in halls and not going to lecture. It was all online, so they, they suffered a lot. But we thought it'd be nice to move back up to a part of the world that we came from because my husband's Welsh. Uh, he's from Gwynedd. So his mum's only a couple of hours away, not even maybe about an hour and a half now. And then my family are in Shropshire and they're just over the border. So it's, what, 45 minutes to go and see them instead of six hours. Um, so it... And they're they're elderly now, so we can get to see our parents um, a lot easier. And yes, we're in Wrexham, which is it's just become a city, but it is really no more than a town. But it's in very lovely countryside around here, so we're not far from these walks that we like to take. Uh, there are a lot of gradients that are a bit steep for me, shall we say? <laughs> but it, it, it's it's a nice part of the world. So we came back here for family and with the kids finishing uni, um, they're all back with us. But it's a good base for them to sort of go out and maybe get their jobs if the because we've got a train station here. That was important. But now all the trains are on strike half the time. So we don't know. <laughs> it just never happens. But this is our two out of three move. We're hoping for a final move when we know what the kids are doing with that, you know, if they're going to be with us or are they going to have their own places. Um, we might go back to a sort of more rural place where I know my husband loves where my parents lives because that's the South Shropshire Hills and it is a lovely part of the, the world there as well. So we're here at the moment in Wrexham and if people want to see what Wrexham's like, there is a certain programme on, on some of the streaming channels. Welcome to Wrexham and it's about the football team. Yeah, uh, you've got Ryan Reynolds and Rod McElhinney. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that place. The stadium is 10 minutes that way. 
Uh, so when they're home, if the windows are open or even if they're shut, you hear the sound. See, but uh, yes, yeah, so that's that's where we are at the moment. See, because the thing with your books, okay, so for me, someone who lives on Vancouver Island in Canada, that is such a different setting, a different backdrop from what mm-hmm. I write, you know. Yeah. So that's why I was wondering where, and I have to say kudos to you that I you're still up you're still up because <laughs> I'm thinking of the time change for us. Oh, it's from um, twenty to seven at the moment. You're okay. okay. I'm okay. I, I, I have been later. <laughs> okay. A lot later. But that's what I think is really cool, though. Is just as I'm, I'm listening here and I'm thinking of your setting and why it stuck, like it it stood out for me because I thought this is a, a different setting from what I have grown up reading. Mm. And when I think of all my writing influences, they have been UK mm. authors, you know. And so, okay, then. Well, that never matters. Okay, I, I, I had to figure that out for myself. Okay. <laughs> I, I will say I watch a lot of, um, there's a streaming, uh, Walter Presents. It's a lot of European dramas, lots of subtitled things on there. I mean, when I was younger, I couldn't stand subtitles, but now I watch a lot of foreign drama with with the subtitles and you you don't see them it's like reading the words yeah. vanish after a while but I'll sit there and I'll watch all these Scandinavian Scandinoir programs and I'll just look at the landscape yeah. and it's totally different and then you might see a Polish or a Czech um, crime drama or, or something like that and again I like to watch them because you see how differently people are yes I know it's for TV and so there's going to be a lot of things going that aren't quite right but um you get an idea of the landscape you see how other people live and it it brings you know it's a change and then there's also google maps with the little yellow person that you can drag onto a place i did a short story set in norway it's a it's a bit of a retelling of a norse um myth and it, it's out later this year i hope it has been accepted but I wanted a, a sort of setting in the mountains in Norway. So I went to the maps and I got the little person, dropped yeah. him down and then went for a walk. <laughs> and then you're just seeing what the mountains are like, what the skies are like. Because when I see photos that friends or others post in, whether it's Canada or America, it's huge. You've yeah. got huge skies, vast prairies or mountain ranges and us with this tiddly little island. <laughs> well, ideas above its station. <laughs> Well, I found out when I was interviewing another author who lives in Portugal that basically the island I live on, Vancouver Island, is the size of Portugal. Okay, so is that it? yeah, so that gave it the the reference. It's not that tiny of an island, right? Yeah. But what I'm finding when I do, I was doing, I've taken a break from it because I'm doing rewrites mm-hmm. on my current book is going on to YouTube as I needed to do research about The Hague. Mm. And that was amazing. Just seeing some of the uh, ordinary people okay, who are discovering The Hague and discovering, mm. you know, different parts of The Hague, different parts of Holland and following their journey and, and just listening to what they're experiencing. And mm. uh yeah, I so, so enjoy watching, like you said, a movie that takes mm-hmm. place in the UK, in Europe, just to get a, it's like I'm hungry for a different setting. 
right? Yeah. 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 I think with with a lot of the Western stuff, whether it's in, you know, British or or American, it's becoming a bit samey. And so you want something that's different. I mean, my own parents have have lost patience a little bit with uh, British TV and they will watch the what we call the Scandi Noir. They love all those Scandinavian films and and whatever. And they say they really know how to tell a story. It's I I don't know why, but I, I don't know whether it's just something you find as you get older, you're open to more experiences that aren't necessarily Amer- you know the ones of your language uh you're a bit more open to to listening or to trying to learn a little bit more um these other things but i w- i will say that when i do watch uh farm programs i'm always looking at the streets and thinking how clean they are <laughs> i think oh britain you need to clean up oh but yeah i i do love i do love the stories and it's just that sense of dread that they have because I don't watch a lot of horror films I watch some but I'm not an avid horror film watcher I'll always watch some especially some of the latest ones I'm not a slasher horror fan by any means I don't tend to watch those I tried the other day to watch Friday the 13th for the first time and I couldn't and then I put it on again and there were another few minutes I thought no I can't (laughs) And I'm doing this project at the moment with someone and it's a horror novella in verse and it's sort of slasher themed, a bit like those things. But I'm not writing the character who's doing all 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 that other sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm the the final girl side of things, I think. But I thought, oh, I I just can't. But if there's this feeling of dread or general darkness then that is something that I do prefer much more to just outright someone's got their head chopped off here or someone's being killed there. It doesn't have to be blood and gore. You you don't actually have to have many deaths. I mean, I do have some because it's part of ritual, but you could write a perfectly good horror without any of that. But a lot of people then would say, oh, it's not horror because there's this stereotypical view of what horror is. Horror is. You know, jump, it's jump scares, it's gore. No, not necessarily. It's um, putting people in situations that you you don't know how you'd react. You mentioned um, what what wouldn't what one wouldn't do that anthology earlier, and I wrote a story in that, and I can't quite remember what it's called now. Um, but it was what to, it was two mothers trying to keep their children alive, and it was both of them were doing what they thought was right. Um, one of them did actually die very painfully, actually. It, it was triggered by my visits to the gym, sitting on a bike and seeing this drip from a ceiling. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but yeah, they, there's not jump scares. There's not blood and gore. It's just this horror of the situation evolving and what finally happens at the end. So I think it'd be nice if people would accept that a, a horror story can be a dark story without all the the usual um stuff that they need to try and attract them in. I I I don't know. It's when I was in the secondary library and I was actually building up horror shelves, which they didn't have any horror books. So I was bringing them in and vetting <laughs> vetting them. I don't censor. I didn't censor what I would do. I would put a minimum reading age on and then if they were younger they could read it with permission of their parents. If they browsed it in the library, then I didn't stop them. But if they wanted to take it out, they had to have permission. So I did that. And I remember I got one and it was, I think it was Clown clown in the Cornfield. And that's a slasher. 
and I gave it a minimum rating on there and the kids wanted to read that one um they were too young and they kept meaning to get permission but I kept saying you know if you got permission you can take it but they kept forgetting but that was one that would attract them yet most of the horror there was a little bit quieter it could be gruesome but because it didn't have the same what they perceived as horror the jump scares um then it didn't appeal to them so I was trying to train them a little bit but yeah <laughs> well and that's what I'm you know I, I wanted to thank Mickey Mickelson of Creative Edge for arranging this interview mm-hmm. and you know he was talking to me about if I want to interview more horror authors and I'm glad I said yes because I am learning because just like what you said I had this stereotypical idea of what a horror novel is. Mm-hmm. And what I'm finding as the books I'm reading, the characters have real motivation, you know, like personal motivation. Mm-hmm. And just, I'm just thinking with um, Reborn, Megan, that sword mm-hmm. she's carrying, you know, like <laughs> that intrigue, you know, and the power that's in that, in that sword, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she is actually quite a strong woman. She went through some horrible times in five turns. Um, there was another loss in there that I'm I'm not talking about now, but it was something that happened to me that was in that book. But I wanted this to be this to resolve her story in a way. And again, she shows a strength in there that you don't always see in women in literature. Yeah. Um so I'm writing a new, as I say, I was writing a new five turns now when it's going to be a Yuletide one. And I was actually thinking today about the main, one of the main characters in the human world. And I thought, yeah, I'll make her like me. Um, recently postmenopausal. Yes, she's going to have, it's, but it's not all going to be about hot flushes yeah. because, <laughs> oh, you've got a hot flush, you're getting a bit hot. But it's not getting a bit hot it's not just wanting to rip your clothes off it's you want to rip your skin off it's like a a pressure cooker there you know it's just so completely overbearing that is not just a little bit of heat that is just something you just want to ah, run away so uh, and then because that leads to sleeplessness and insomnia which I get and all other things I I think I'm going to bring that in there a lot more so she this character is going to be an older an older woman and she'll she'll forget things she'll be exactly like I am now getting my words the wrong way around or overheating and all sorts of things going on but I'm going to have that in there but she is still going to be a strong woman whether she survives or not is a, I don't know yet because I make things up as I go along I don't plot okay. I don't outline so I have a character and they they're already starting to tell me their their story. She started to tell me hers a little bit this morning. Um, so as I say, I don't know whether she will survive or not. Yeah. But I want her to be a strong woman, but someone who is at the same sort of stage of life as I am, yeah. so that it reflects a little bit more on women's lives in general, because none of this is ever shown. I think I saw a bit of... Um, is it Borgen or Bergen? I can never remember its proper name, but it's a Danish uh, political thing. And the the woman there who's supposed to, I think she's running for prime minister or whatever it was, and she was going, they showed her 
having to change her shirt or going off and standing in front of a fridge and doing she's doing things that people do but you wouldn't normally see shown in any other sort of tv show or anything else they it's explicitly showing the symptoms although yes a little bit dressed up but <laughs> so Richard <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but bringing more of that in into yeah. it and making it show show people that yes, we have these things, and yet yeah, it's hard to deal with, but we still deal with them. I think with women's biology, you have to deal with so much throughout your life. Yeah, you know, it's it can be horrendous. Yeah. So yeah, I thought I'll bring that in as well. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, another thing that I've written a note down here. I love the idea that you had a scene come to you that was inspired when you were talking about your short story that was inspired by the day you went to the gym. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I used to be a personal trainer and I thought that's great. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I still go, I'm, I'm at a different gym now. So there's, there's pipes, but they're not actually over me dripping on me, so they're they're quite safe at the minute. Um, I I know it was condensation, but when I was when it when I was back down at, at that particular gym, I thought, well, what if that had been a drop of acid? And so there you can see what where it, where the story was going. But I I go to the gym sort of three times a week at the minute. My my joints won't take much more. But but the cross trainer, I find, is the place that I am beginning to get my ideas. If I'm thinking about things and I go into the gym and I'm on the cross trainer and my mind is empty, so there's no pressure, no stress, yeah. suddenly things will start to come in and I go, oh, yeah. And then that just keeps working. I can't do it when I'm on my weights because I count the reps. Yeah. I tried this morning. I think I got up to 50 yeah. on something and then suddenly realized I was counting up to 20 again. <laughs> so I could- <laughs> So I couldn't remember what I was doing. <laughs> See, and for me, it's walking the dogs, um, especially because usually I I do my writing in the morning and then I'll take the dogs out during like my lunchtime. And for instance, it's, you know, you mentioned how you don't plot. And I was looking at a comment, a uh, kind of like my writing mentor had written on my story. And she had said, this character right now is like a blank slate. Can we get more about her? You know, and I was I was looking at that. I thought, gosh, yeah, who is this character? This totally new character, uh, speculative fiction, time travel story I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm working on. And I took the dogs for a walk. And like you say, your mind is blank. And you're just, it's like you're running different scenarios. Like, okay, well, was she married? Did she get divorced? Why did she get divorced? What happened in the divorce? And then it hit me out of all this stuff I went through thinking about. It was, what if she lost her dog in the divorce proceedings and the spouse got the dog? And that hit me. And I thought, okay, hold on to that. You can work with this, right? Yeah. You know, so... Wow. Well, Stephanie, this has been so cool. So I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> good. So what's next or anything you'd like to add? Um, yeah. Uh, I've got a new novel coming out in August now. It was going to be June, but it's been put back to August, The Woodcutter. It's folk horror. 
Um, it's not set in the same universe. It is a bit of a departure and it is me playing with unreliable narrators. <laughs> so <laughs> I used to confuse myself when I was writing it, um, but it plays on old um, sort of legends in another little rural corner of England. So about this, um, it might have been real, this creature called the woodcutter. It's a bit of a play on the Red Riding Hood theme. Oh, you do get the woodcutter mentioned, you get grandma mentioned, but you find out what Red Riding Hood really was. Um, so there, there's that element. And I brought in a bit of a reality show in there to play along with all this. So it's, it's, a, bit, it's a good bit of fun. So I've got that book coming out. I've got a short story that's out in the Old Ways anthology, or which might be called The Old Ones. Michelle at Erie River Publishing will tell me off for not getting it right, but I've got a story in that. That's folk horror that's just coming out called Bringing in the May, and that is set in the same world as Reborn because I do like to uh, find other stories that are in that world. If you're going to create this whole new world then you may as well play with it and find other characters and other events that you can sort of twist to your own ends. So I've got that coming out. Um, there's maybe a couple of non-fiction things and there is another story possibly later, but I, I can't really remember those. The ones that I'm working on at the moment is that slasher horror novella in verse, <laughs> which is, oh, it's hilarious. But I will say the poet I'm working with, he was my co-author on Lilith Rising, which is another horror novella in verse that was out last year. We self-published that. Um, it, we just worked really well together. And it's sort of a bit of a the Lilith's return with a lot of revenge and yeah. Adams. It's very much free verse in that one. This one is free verse and sonnets as well. So I've got a, a found sonnet um, that's in Shakespeare Unleashed. Crystal Lake Publishing are, are doing Shakespeare Unleashed this year. And they were doing retellings of the plays. And you could also do a sonnet. It had to be horror. So I found King John. And I did a sonnet, a found sonnet from that. So I did do, I have done another bit of found poetry. So that's coming out. And then I'm trying to work on this new Five Turns novel as well. And last thing was I did do a dark historical um, novel, which is a bit more mainstream. And I'm currently querying that with agents. And at the minute, I've got. 100% rejection rate. <laughs> so, but I, I will keep going. I would like to try the, may, you know, everyone would love that validation, wouldn't they? Yeah. So it's this is me doing that again. I self-publish. I'm published with small presses. So it is very much a hybrid. But I think regardless of what we do and what we say, there are times when, when we all seek that validation from the, the higher-ups in the publishing world. And so this is one of my usual attempts to have a go and then I realise oh this is futile and I'll give it up and I'll carry on my own way so I will explore all avenues and occasionally try that but otherwise I keep working um, keep writing and having fun with my writing I think is the main thing and be open to all sorts of opportunities yeah. so yeah yeah <laughs> keep busy. And, yeah and and that's this I you know I'm doing I will be doing the exact same thing too, as like you said, like looking at agents, looking to try to get in. And, you know, just mm. I'm taking a different approach to it than I did before. Mm. And I'm just going to keep doing my thing, you know, keep, yeah. keep writing my novels, my time travels. Yeah. 
So yeah, I I think that's what's better these days. Before everybody was so tied up with having to go the traditional route with the big publishers, you had to have an agent to get to the publishers, and that cuts so many people out of the writing world. Now we could actually carve our own careers while maybe having a go the other other way but then if it doesn't work there's nothing to stop us carrying on our own way and maybe even achieving greater success than we would have you know if we'd followed that path originally so we're almost having our cake and eating it you know I'd like a bit more cake (laughs) (laughs) like all all writers but um yeah I'm I'm the one with the crumbs on the plate at the moment (laughs) 